This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Friends Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital Indian Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Jeff Weniger, Director of Asset Allocation at WisdomTree, and I'm joined by phone by host Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at WisdomTree. And you know Wharton Professor Jeremy Siegel, Stocks for the Long Run, Future for Investors. Please note that I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services and that Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not a recommendation for any trading strategy, nor is it tied to any sale of in- any investment product. The views of, of our guests are not those of Wisdom Tree or any of its affiliates. We have a great guest today. You know who it is. It's Dave Rosenberg. We're going to introduce him in a little bit, but first we're going to go to Professor Siegel, who's on the line. We had a lot of things going on this week. We had a little bit of a GDP uh, action. We had the ECB decision, which was midweek, corporate earnings. Professor Siegel, what's the score? <laughs> You're absolutely right. We, this, this is really interesting. Well, let's zero in. I think the GDP is perhaps the, uh, the, the biggest news over here. Um, it came in, I mean, those who have been listening to me, I was on the high side, and I said around two, I think, even last week, and it did come in right at that, uh, you know, two level. I think uh, the biggest, uh, which was above expectations, 2.1, I think the biggest uh, surprise um, were the revisions, um, and particularly the big uh, downward revision of fourth quarter GDP. Now, what that meant was the uh, Trump's much ballyhooed 3% growth rate of 2000. Um, and uh, 18 is, uh, is, is off, is now not a history. It's two and a half, a big downward revision. Now, there was some bump up in 2017, and he was president during then. So but his, his GDP during the whole period certainly is not bad. Um, in fact, it's, it's quite good given that, you know, we're 10 years out into an economic expansion. But um, you know, clearly the 3% growth, which was quite remarkable, uh, he just made it on the original data on 3%, which is what he wanted to do, uh, really now is, is, is quite off the mark. Now, as far as, let's, let's concentrate on what this means uh, for the Fed next week. Um, uh, a lot of people, have, the first commentary, oh my goodness, the economy isn't that weak, and it is true, you look at the real data. Uh, jobless claims uh, looked very, very strong uh, yesterday. Um, this GDP number is strong. A little bit more inventory build, which is tamped down this quarter, third quarter GDP estimates by just a tenth or two by most um, forecasters that I follow. Still about 2.1, 2.2 looking at the, this third quarter. Of course, we just, just moved uh, into it. We're just uh, into July on, on this quarter. Now, um, the re- I definitely think they're going on a quarter um, uh, with very strong probability. As, now, as opposed to 50 basis points? In India, I don't think definitely on this number they, they cannot go 50. Not that, I mean, actually I've been saying they should go 50, and I still think so because of the term structure, but they're not going to go 50. Let me say one thing that is really important in, in this report. Um, even though GDP um, number came in quite strong in the second quarter, um, the personal consumption expenditure deflator, which is just a fancy uh, name for the inflation index that the Fed follows, actually came in below estimates. Um, and uh, we're going to be getting tomorrow the actual estimate for uh, the um, uh, June 
uh, uh, personal consumption expenditure. But that's the one that they target. When they, when you hear that the Fed has the 2% target, um, and that, they, that that is the index that they target, that is falling further below their expectation. So all those doves that are going to be in favor of of you know you're going to it's going to be a very spirited discussion you know the real economy is not really deteriorating yet the inflation index is not meeting that expectation now other inflation indexes are consumer prices and a few others i won't go into them but the the fed is very explicit about the one they follow and the one that they follow uh is actually falling uh, even further short of the 2% a target that they have. It was mentioned, uh, by the way, by the Bureau of Economic Analysis and the government in their report that they have redone uh, the cost of uh, mobile phone uh, service. And uh, when they put in all the discounts and all the extra benefits that people get, it is uh, going down in price more than they uh, had originally anticipated. That's one of the reasons why the PCE is moving uh, downward. Um, with the GDP number on inflation uh, is actually mo- moved up considerably, but GDP includes exports, includes government services, includes investment goods. That's not what the Fed is targeting. So the index that the Fed follows is actually falling further short of the 2%. That is going to embolden all the doves on the committee say, hey, come on, that's what we're supposed to be, and we're not there. Um, and as a result, that's why I think, uh, you know, 25 basis points is, is uh, slam dunk well, Professor uh, Siegel, for there, uh, next week. There, there is a lot of discussion, and we're looking at the tape here, the S&Ps at 3,023. Um, it seems like just yesterday, 10 years ago, we were bottoming out at 666 on that index. Does it surprise you that even with with the deterioration in some of these inflation indicators that you're seeing, it's not exactly Armageddon out there? You know, the justification for even having a debate between 25 and 50 basis points, is it a little surreal to you? Well, I'll tell you what. Uh, See, there's there's it's there are two groups at the Fed, and if you take a look at the June dot plot, which indicates what the FOMC desires the Fed funds to, raise, to be at the end of the year. I, uh, it, it, what they said in June was, I had never seen anything like it. Basically, half the committee says there's no reason to move it down. And half the committee said 50 basis points by the end of the year. Um, and there was only one person in the middle, <laughs> which is a bifurcated, bimodal, which I have never seen before. Um, so that's the group. There's the, the Phillips curve group that says the economy is strong, unemployment is near all-time lows or at all-time lows. We can get pressure on the labor market. That's the traditional Fed view. There's no reason. Then there is the term structure group. <laughs> and uh, they're really led by James Bullard uh, of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. Um, but there are others. Um, that uh, are also very sensitive to that, and we did invert the term structure. The short-term rate should be below the long-term interest rate. It is not, and they said, you know, basically there we really needed fifty uh, a fifty-point drop uh, on Fed funds. I mean, um, the the peg rate is two thirty-five. It should be one eighty-five because the ten year is two hundred five. We should have at least 20 basis points between the two. So you're, you're, the war is between the term structure group and the traditionalist uh, Phillips curve group. Now, the traditional Phillips curve group, as we know, has not been forecasting very well recently. They've been saying for years that we're about to get wage inflation, and we haven't. So that group is a little discredited, and that's one reason why the term structure group uh, has grown to the – uh, strength that it has that I think it's about one half of the open market committee at the present time. Okay, beautiful. This this seems like a perfect opportunity to bring in Rosie. If you don't know Rosie, it's Dave Rosenberg. You, you probably knew him years ago when he was over at Merrill. That's that's how I, in my early part of my career, got, got acclimated with him when he was essentially running the show over there. Went over to Gluskin. You know, Gluskin Chef is the Toronto operation. Um, it, it, Rosie is 
has a cult following, a huge subscriber base with the Breakfast with Dave group. Um, it's the morning missive. I don't even know how the guy finds enough time in the day to put together these 7- to 14-page write-ups every single day. And you read it, and it's just as intriguing as the previous day. I, I, it's, it's, it's really fascinating. And as you'll see as we get into this, and Professor Siegel, I'd like you to stay on the line. Uh, Rosie has an, an insightful... Hour, so I, yes, and I definitely want to hear his interpretation of of uh, events. Well, Dave, Dave, you're a talker. What's the score? What do you, what do you think about what, what Professor Siegel just said? Well, I really don't have any uh, fundamental disagreement um, with uh, the characterizations, certainly, certainly of the Fed, uh, and we know it's a very divided Fed. Uh, so starting off on that, I think that uh, what's important here, there's a couple things. Uh, uh, I'm actually quite happy that um, Powell seems to have signaled that the Fed is no longer data-dependent. Uh, I've never really liked that philosophy because if you're following the data, um, you're destined to make a policy mistake uh, because the data are backward-looking and the impact that Monterey policy exerts on the real economy, those lags are long, variable, and uh, insidious, and they can last anywhere from 12 to 36 months. So you're just doomed to be making a mistake if you're following the data. Uh, you know, let traders and economists uh, and pundits follow the data. The Fed should really be forecast dependent. And um, it's not about a point forecast. Uh, the Fed didn't make a lot of fundamental changes to its published forecast. What it did verbally is tell you that um, the comfort zone or the band of uh, certainty around their forecast has changed materially over the course of the past few quarters. And, and that's really important because if you go to a portfolio manager uh, and you say, you know, this is my base case, but I've changed my probability of it happening from 80% odds to 40% odds, even without making a numerical change to your view, uh, they're going to make some changes to how their portfolio is constructed. So I think that's very important. Um, you know, the you know the Fed um, has been consumed with the neutral funds rate. Uh, I was rather surprised that... Um, uh, that uh, Jay Powell came in because he's not an academic. Uh, he's a credit markets guy, and he comes in guns blazing talking about how far the Fed is from neutral. Uh, and in fact, it was on October the 3rd of last year, uh, after the rate hike in September, where he said that uh, we're a long way from neutral and we may have to go above neutral. And that's really when the Trump tweets started going um, wild. Uh, and then, of course, for the first time ever, the Fed tighten policy into a market maelstrom uh, in December. Um, I've done a lot of work on the neutral funds rate, uh, and I remember that Lyle Brainerd, uh, you know, the governor on the Fed, um, talked about uh, the what's really important for monetary policy is the short-term neutral funds rate. And I've done my own work on where observable or measurable inflation is in the United States. I think most of the scholarly research would say that uh, the funds rate in real terms, that is, uh, at neutral equilibrium, is around 0.5, 0.6%. Uh, I mean, I get the uh, neutral funds rate uh, closer to 1.5% uh, than 2.5%. And uh, well, one of the first things that Jay Powell did when he came in was the Fed, after years of cutting their estimate of the neutral funds rate, it's hard to believe that just about oh, seven, eight years ago, their estimate of neutral was four and a quarter. Yeah. <laughs> People tend to forget that. And they got, got as low as two and three quarters, then Powell comes in, they go to three. I think that was a classic mistake. And now they're back to two and a half and they're still too high. So when people are debating, well, you know, should the Fed do this, should the Fed do that? Well, I think there's two things. They're operating policy based on their forecast, not on the lagging indicators or coincidence indicators. And Powell said something very interesting in the second day of his congressional testimony a couple of weeks ago where he had acknowledged that the Fed over-tightened. Uh, and, of course, uh, that means that they're probably going to have to take the neutral funds rate uh, prediction down even more. I think they over-tightened by 75 to 100 basis points. I think just to get down to neutral, uh, that's where they have to be. And, and I think that that's probably what they're going to be doing, uh, whether or not we get a recession. And that's pretty well already priced in uh, to the futures curve. So I don't think that um, you know we differ too much on the interpretation of the Fed. Uh, I'm certainly lining up more dovishly uh, than hawkishly. You know, I know that, uh, you know, there was the comment about, and you're seeing it all over the media today about, well, these are the Fed cut rates at all next week, or certainly just go 25, which I think they're leaning to. Uh, but make no mistake, 
today's GDP number uh, was pretty mixed. Uh, it was heavily influenced, of course, by the 70% of the GDP pie called uh, the consumer, uh, which was up at a 4.3% annual rate. Uh, we have to take that in the context of two quarters previously, each one barely more than 1%. But what has me a little concerned here was how that 4.3% growth in consumer spending, which seems like a lovely number, uh, how that was really constructed. <clears throat> because we know that real after-tax income uh, was only up at a 2.5% annual rate. Mm -hmm. uh, so this was really funded by a drawdown in the personal savings rate. Of course, you could see that in the very strong numbers that we've gotten of late in terms of uh, revolving and non-revolving consumer credit. Um, but if we had held consumer spending to the rate of growth of organic income, uh, that wouldn't have been 4.3%. It would have been 25 And real GDP would not have been 2.1%. It would have been 1.0%. Uh, and we'd be talking about a stall speed economy. So I think that uh, the, the, the tenor behind uh, what happened on the consumer um, leaves me relatively unimpressed. Uh, and then you take a look at some of the other components of the report, uh, you know, real exports down 5.2% in annual rate. Uh, for the first time in three years, uh, capital spending, business investment was negative 06 and even with the dramatic uh, downturn in mortgage rates, all the heavy lifting that the bond market did to get mortgage rates down, here we have residential investment or housing, negative 1.5%. I mean, housing in the GDP accounts has contracted now for six consecutive quarters. Uh, and we haven't seen something like that since um, 08, 09. And, and, and housing decidedly weak in places like Manhattan, San Francisco, almost a, a little bit of a follow-on to, to what you, you've seen, um, certainly in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, that, do you think that could end up being one of those next developments that kind of acts as a, as a little bit of a black cloud um, over, over generalized sentiment? Well, I actually think that what really jumped out at me in this report that has me concerned is, uh, I mean, not so much the, um, the housing. I think at some point we're going to level off in the next couple of quarters. Um, and it's not necessarily the consumer, although what I'm trying to say is that that was what I would refer to as a low-quality 4.3 on consumer spending. It was the drawdown of the savings rate. Mm -hmm. uh, the, and uh, the reality is that uh, income was only up 2.5%, which isn't terrible. But it shows you that um, the extent to which consumption growth outpaced um, uh, real income growth. Uh, what catches my eye here is the decline in uh, business spending. And uh, my thesis all along has been that this will be a capital spending-led recession. Uh, I think the trade uh, tensions and tariffs, uh, I mean, that's really an added source of aggravation. But uh, I always say after a, uh, a Fed easing cycle, follow the bubble. Uh, and then, of course, when we get the Fed tightening cycle, you tend to find that the bubble uh, tends to um, either burst or certainly uh, see the helium come out of it. And the bubble this time around was on corporate balance sheets, not household balance sheets. So uh, there's a whole host of reasons why capital spending um, is being is weakening. Uh, a lot of it, of course, comes down to the general um, global uncertainty politically and economically, but also the reality is that this is the first year of five years where we're going to have a tsunami of uh, corporate debt refinancings, and so we're going to be finding a lot of the cash flows being diverted to debt service, even under this low industry environment, and away from capital spending. Well, uh, I want to. Sorry, I, and I'll just make the point that you see this in the past in other cycles. Capital spending uh, will lead to uh, declines in employment, or certainly weaker employment conditions. We've seen that lately. You know, look at the JOLT survey. Look at the. I know that the professor is right. The jobless claim numbers were very low. Uh, nobody wants to fire because, you, you know, we don't have any talent left in the labor pool, so you want to hang on to your best talent. Um, but the hiring rate is slowing down materially. Uh, and the one thing that caught my eye in the latest ADP number is that small business employment has contracted now for each of the past two months. And small business employment is a great leading indicator uh, for the labor market and the economy, and that's starting to roll over. And held up as for, for some time as one of the support structures for the U.S. economy. Ladies and gentlemen, who you're listening to, that's the voice of Dave Rosenberg. He's the chief economist and strategist at Gluskin Chef. He's going back and forth here with Professor Siegel from Wharton. This is, this is a beautiful thing. And what I want to do is 
I want to make sure that we can stay on the rates subject because I feel like we cut off Professor Siegel a little bit on rates. You know, there was allusions you just made, Rosenberg, to um, uh, this chase down a little bit, the the, the currency yeah. wars. You had made a, a brief reference a little bit there to Trump being, um, you know, the, the tweeter in, in chief with, with his conflicts with, with Jay Powell. You're on business radio here, Behind the Markets, Sirius XM 132. Professor Siegel, one basis point on a 20-year German boond. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, And uh, on a 10-year, it's minus 37. (laughs) But, you know, I do want to go back um, just to understand. Uh, David, you think the neutral real Fed funds rate is it negative one-half to give you a a one-and-a-half nominal? I was a little confused on... What is what is your real neutral Fed funds rate? Well, real, I'd put it uh, 0.5.6. Okay. And then okay. Uh, and then the question becomes, you know, what is the core core inflation rate? What so much of the uh, CPI and PCE are imputed by the government statisticians, uh, but if you looked at inflation for the goods and services, they can actually uh, measure relatively precisely. Uh, you know, underlying inflation is closer to 1% than it is to 1.5 or 2. Uh, and so that's why I say that, that my estimate of where the neutral nominal is probably close to 1.5 as opposed to where the Fed's published is right now, which is 2.5. So you think that inflation is just being overstated. By the way, yeah. I, uh, you know, I've been saying for a long time, one of the big phenomenons of the last 10 years is the collapse of real interest rates, both on the long end and on the short run. And I totally agree with you. The Fed has been way slow at lowering their long-term uh, neutral rate, really lagging. I mean, I have to give Bill Gross credit. Remember, he, he talked about the new neutral. Uh, he said it was zero on real. Uh, back, I think it was 2014, uh, when he said, and the Fed was, as you said, the Fed was like, you know, two, three, four, way up there. And he said, guys, we're in a, a new world that's much lower interest rate. You know, personally, I think it, I think it could be zero or not. Now, you're redefining the, the inflation rate, so in a way we could both adjust that one way or the other. But uh, given the published inflation rate, I think uh, the new neutral is zero, maybe even minus 0.5%. I mean, I think... You know, you take a look around the world, and you took, take a look at, uh, you know, the level of risk aversion and savings habits and everything. Um, but I think the Fed is way too high then. And I think that you're right. What happened was Powell, you know, took the Fed's level, which was way too high, said, oh, well, uh, you know, unemployment is so low, therefore we should be there and maybe even a little above there. That was the standard Phillips curve story. And uh, then the market sort of punched him into, hey, guys, that's too high. That okay. neutral rate that you're thinking of is too high. And as you know, the, the Fed itself lowered, a, a, it was a big lowering between March and June, and they may lower it again when we get to uh, September, the next uh, meeting, which of course is going to be a really interesting meeting um, on whether they're going to go that remaining 25. I totally agree with you. The Fed should, the short rate should be lower, um, and the, the neutral rate is lower, and the Fed is really slow at at, at recognizing um, that level. Um, that said, how weak are we? I mean, it, it is true investment has been slow. Housing has been slow. The consumer really saved this. So in a way, the details of this report are not great. There was also uh, more inventory accumulation expected, which is also a detail that does not make the future. And that is another reason why I think the doves, you know, have a, have a great case of uh, let's let's continue moving uh, this rate down. Now, does this lead? Do you think this will lead to negative real GDP growth, um, David? This in the next two three quarters, um, or just sort of what we sometimes call a growth recession, which is zero to one percent uh, type of a GDP. Yeah. Uh... I mean, I wouldn't be surprised in the next, say, three to four quarters that we see a flat to negative print. Um, I think that this coming recession is not going to be defined really by uh, the magnitude uh, or the peak to trough weakness uh, in GDP as much as um, 
the duration and how difficult it's going to be for uh, monetary and fiscal policy to get us out of this. Um, so I would say this much, um, you know, without getting into, you know, whether or not we get a, a negative number that ultimately gets revised anyway. You know, I can't believe how many people today, and I've seen some published reports and uh, and on uh, on TV uh, talking about how well we we can breathe a sigh of relief because there's no recession. Uh, again, these are these are coincident numbers that we're looking at right now. They don't give you a lot of window on the future. And I'll tell you this: uh, data back to 1948, um, you'd be surprised to know that. Uh, uh, that you know, in the month before the re- in the quarter before the recession, uh, GDP isn't negative. Uh, and mm-hmm. actually, if you go and I'm looking at the ten different you know recessions in the post World War II experience, you'd find that uh, as the recession is beginning, and I'm talking about either the quarter before the recession starts or the quarter that the recession starts, uh, that the median GDP growth rate for that quarter is 2.4. And the average is 3.2. Well, um, I agree with you 100. In fact, yeah. not only that, it is months and months later when they turn actually call the turning point. The turning point of the recession, if I remember, was December 17, uh, two, uh, two, excuse me, 2007, um, was is uh, the NBER peak of the last business in December of 2007. No one thought there was a recession. Or even on the horizon. In fact, the Fed meeting and the staff said there's no recession coming up. So, yeah. Now, with that said, some people have asked me, is this the longest economic expansion in history? It has to last to this month. <laughs> and, you know, when we look back, would this, could this be the turning point? It could. It definitely could. I would say as the debt is, is coming in, it doesn't look like July is maybe the turning point. But uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the, the past GDP is not a, a relief that's saying there isn't a recession coming up. Now, that being said, I don't see one. I also think, uh, you know, that the I think there's the Fed has enough silver bullets. I mean, they're enough above zero. They can go back to QE. I mean, none of this is, you know, will solve everything, but they certainly have far more latitude than the Japanese or the Europeans by a mile in terms of if we do actually see a downturn. Now, I don't think they're going to be downturned that severely unless we get a trade war, which I don't think is going to happen because of political reasons. Um, I would just very much uh, solicit your view on 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 that issue too. But uh, I I still think the Fed has. I mean, just a quarter point or a half point is going to enough encourage the market, and they can go down even further unless there's some inherent problem that is really going to cause a crumbling of economic growth. Dave Rosenberg, give us a 30 seconds, and then we're going to go over to a break. Well, look, I think that the economy is, um, is is weaker than most people think. I think we have to take a look. Uh, we had first quarter growth 3.1. Uh, second quarter growth we got today was 2.1. Uh, and yet, as I said before, if if you you know if you strip out the effects of the savings rate drawdown and the effects of government spending, I mean gov- government spending in real terms was five percent at an annual rate. We last time we had that was in two thousand and nine. Um, so if you're taking a look at stripping out some of these things that I don't think are recurring, and of course we still have an inventory overhang, as the professor said. I mean, you strip out the savings rate, that alone, and government spending, that alone, and the economy actually was close to 0% in the second quarter. So I hope the Fed does some um, does a real deep dive into the data. Uh, I don't think they'll go 50 next week at one point. I thought they, they could. They, they probably won't. But uh, I think that, um, that they're going to be cutting rates pretty aggressively in the next year. I think that this economy is not out of the woods by a long shot. Okay, we're going to take this break. What you just heard was a half hour of Dave Rosenberg and Professor Jeremy Siegel largely agreeing with each other in general commentary. I think uh, lightning must have just struck. 
That was beautiful. This is Jeff Weniger from Wisdom Tree. This is Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 132. Professor Siegel is going to hop off the line here. Jeremy Schwartz has been on the line the whole time, the, the, the regular host of this. He's just out of town. He's on the line as well. We're going to come back in a few minutes. Dave Rosenberg from Gluskin Chef is going to still be with us. We're going to, we're going to go right back down this path. And Dave, let's talk about that illusion that, that, that Siegel made to more, more dry powder being in the hands of the Fed Meanwhile, because the ECB is it has its hands tied, and there's so much discussion about that particular central bank. And what you just heard from the last half hour was Dave going back and forth with Professor Siegel about extraordinary monetary policy, essentially. And Jeremy Schwartz, I want to start with essentially some of the things that you had been hearing buzzing around the industry. There had been a few major money managers. We, maybe you can you can discuss this with Dave a little bit, talking about the extent to which the ECB might totally open up the playbook. And I know Rosenberg can go on this um, until he's blue in the face. What is the story behind that? And what are, what are, are, is the market starting to entertain? Yeah, we had, you know, a big conversation on the Fed in the first half. The other big news this week was the ECB meeting and Draghi coming out. He's starting to think about his transition plan, Christine Lagarde coming to take over. And there has been rumblings like the ECB's at negative 40 on their deposit rate and charging the banks. Yeah. Uh, and it's been, it's creating havoc for a lot of the European banks. They've had really, uh, bad performance, not just from the negative rates, but that's really not helping over the last decade. Um, and so people worry about can they go more negative? Can they charge the banks even more? You know, what are they getting to the, the limit of how much bonds they can buy? Because they're buying according to these capital keys that Germany, they're buying too many of the German bonds. Like, what else can they buy? How else can they stimulate the economy? And there's rumblings. Can they follow the playbook of the Bank of Japan where they expand their toolkit beyond bonds and do things like equities, like the Bank of Japan is buying? Maybe that helps stimulate some risk assets and sentiment and lowers the cost of capital and, and, and further helps um, just support the economy. Um, but what you saw the ECB announce yesterday, they're sort of teasing out the September meeting. Um, they, they talk about potentially going to a two-tier deposit system so that that could provide some relief to the banks if they go take their short-term rate even more negative. Um, they talk about expanding, starting up QE again. Uh, so it's, it's sort of really setting the stage for more stimulus. I mean, I think they do see more signs of distress in that when, when Dave talked about you know, the, the business investment manufacturing, a lot of it's globally oriented and the U.S. doing a bit better than some of these other foreign economies. And, and you know, with the question is, will, will that support help? Um, you know, Dave, I'm curious to get your sentiment on with the ECB getting more aggressive, maybe going more negative. What are investors to do? What, what are the sort of asset classes you're, you're talking about as protection in, its, in this, all this environment? Well, if that, uh, well, firstly, I, I think that there's no doubt um, after what Draghi had to say uh, yesterday that um, they're blazing the trail for uh, um, a cut in the deposit rate and um, I think even more guidance for more ease and uh, set the stage clearly for more aggressive QE. Um, you know, the, my sense on, on Europe is that <clears throat> a lot of their problems, of course, uh, are related more to, um, uh, you know, very weak uh, banking sector structures, uh, weekly capitalized financial institutions, uh, and um, the unwillingness, uh, and maybe this will change, of uh, Germany, which has the capacity uh, to ease fiscal policy. Fiscal policy is just too tight. Um, and that, that's one of, one of the big differences between uh, the euro area and uh, what's happening uh, uh, in the U.S. Uh, I mean, there's two other things to consider, <clears throat> which is that... Um, uh, Europe is uh, getting caught very seriously in the crossfire uh, in this trade war between uh, um, China and the U.S. Uh, and it's not just China and the U.S. I mean, we are in two real um, uh, trade frictions globally. I mean, here we just uh, have seen in the past few weeks uh, this tech uh, trade war between uh, uh, Korea and Japan, for example. Uh, you know, German is a major um, exporting hub, and it is the uh, engine for the entire Euro area, uh, and it's being hit really hard. And if you're taking a look at these manufacturing diffusion indices, they're much worse uh, in Germany and in many parts of Europe than they are uh, here at home. Uh, on top of that, uh, I think another uh, elephant in the room uh, that actually would leave me with a, a view towards not really... Um, being investing in Europe uh, for the next little while 
is the uncertainty surrounding uh, Brexit, uh, because it looks to me that uh, Boris Johnson uh, is uh, is more than willing, uh, if he can manage to do it, uh, to walk out without a deal. I think that would be very bad news, not just for the UK, but for the euro area. Um, I think that um, both currencies against the US dollar, cable and the euro, are going to weaken off. Um, so I imagine that you can build an investment thesis where you want to be in maybe the large cap exporters, if you want, because they'll get the currency translation effect. Um, but there's just uh, right now too much, I would say, economic risk and political risk in Europe right now, Dave for, my, for my liking. Dave Rosenberg, you made an allusion there three or four minutes ago to essentially uh, the fact that, that the Germans have a, a budget surplus that's been running, what, four or five years, and an expansionary um, fiscal policy could be a, a, a portent there. Uh, Germans discussing a little bit if AKK ends up ends up replacing Angela Merkel, that perhaps you could even get uh, the NATO defense expenditures finally coming back up to those that are um, being demanded by Trump. But the question is: Is would they be? Would it be enough for them to stimulate on the fiscal side? When, if I'm not mistaken, you have Germany in recession at time zero, right? Do you have in your in your work Germany is in recession right now? Well, it was a real close call about uh, three or four months ago. Uh, I would say that um, uh, probably, uh, certainly, uh, certainly they are in a manufacturing recession, but. Uh, like most other places, uh, the service sector bulks large, and services don't tend to be quite as cyclical uh, as uh, the goods-producing sector is. Uh, I, I doubt that Germany is in a technical recession right now, but I would say that they, you know, the, the best term I would use is stagnant or stall speed. So if it's not recession, it's one rung up from that. And in terms of the, the euro itself and the, the implications of this back and forth between uh, Jay Powell and Draghi and what will soon be Christine Lagarde, right? Uh, you know, we'll, we'll get that transition in November. Some flirtations here with 2019 lows on, on euro versus USD. Where are you on that currency pair? Well, I, you know, I, I think that the path of least, of least resistance is going to be um, the U.S. dollar, uh, you know, notwithstanding, um, you know, the tweets out of the White House, uh, how much, uh, you know, the administration mm-hmm. would love to see a weaker currency. It seems like everybody would love to see a weaker currency. Um, but um, it's unclear, really, how much, how far the, the Fed is going to go. Uh, I think that they should uh, cut rates more aggressively. That's based on my economic outlook. But you could see it's a very divided Fed. <laughs> you don't have a divided ECB. They're going to be easing policy aggressively. Um, and uh, on top of that, we have the Brexit-related concerns. Uh, and uh, so my sense is that um, uh, the U.S. dollar is going to continue to strengthen. Um, you know, for the next several months. Uh, it's probably, you can argue, a crowded trade. You look at the DXY on the charts, it's looking like it's heading into congestion territory. Um, but uh, I'd have to say that uh, looking at, uh, you know, the relative states of the economy, uh, even the relative political risk, it's not as if we don't have, um, you know, some uncertainty surrounding the 2020 elections. But uh, I think that um, risk for return, uh, and certainly looking at relevant interest rate differentials, um, the U.S. dollar looks to be a uh, much more attractive uh, currency right now, so I think it's going to continue to uh, to appreciate over the next uh, at least the, at least the next several months. Okay, we're going to go. You've you've also talked about you know in this environment, and we see I've seen some of your commentary that that gold is a good asset now. The dollar could be some headwind to that, but it, when you think about the case for gold today, is that the negative rates and just all this this geopolitical noise? Like, what do you think is the the real case for gold at, at the moment and maybe even the longer term? Well, I think that, uh, you know, gold has been rallying uh, in every single currency term. So, and it's actually hung in extremely well against the U.S. dollar. Uh, and I think you're quite right because it's measured in dollars, but it's actually done very well in an environment where the dollar uh, has, been, um, has been on the stronger side. So that actually... Uh, is actually very bullish for gold when it's rallying in tandem against all the currencies because it's not just say historically it'd be oh, oh it's a weak U.S. dollar story. Uh, a weak U.S. dollar story for gold is a nice story, but it's not usually an enduring story. Uh, when gold is firming up against all the currencies, uh, that is the hallmark of a full-fledged bull market. I think the overriding um, supportive factor for bullion is this. Uh, it's the fact that you have $13 trillion or a quarter of the world's bond market trading with a negative yield. 
It's the reality that um, uh, you've got a situation, you've got a very unusual situation here, that here 10 years into the expansion, the global output gap has not closed. Uh, nobody talks about that. The global output gap is 0.5%. Uh, we never closed the gap. And now we have the OECD leading indicator down 17 months in a row uh, to its lowest level, by the way, since 2009. Uh, the IMF cutting its forecast uh, for the fourth straight month. Uh, so that output gap is going to widen in the next year. And that means that we're going to get more deflation uh, than inflation. And your thought process would be, well, you know, uh, well, gold's just a hedge against inflation. No, gold is also a hedge against deflation because it's going to force interest rates even lower. Uh, the opportunity cost of holding gold is the coupon, and the coupon in the global fixed income market is disintegrating. Uh, and that's, I think, the most principally, the most, uh, the, really the bullish reason for, for gold is where interest rates are heading around the world. Okay, okay, we, we, have, we have to reset here. We're making references here to, to U.S. dollar strength. Rosie, I want you to start thinking a little bit about implications for the emerging world if, if the strength continues apace uh, in a deflationary thesis. Uh, not exactly the best situation if you're holding dollar debt and you, and you have another base currency. This is Jeff Weniger over at, over at uh, Wisdom Tree, Director of Asset Allocation. The show is behind the markets. The question that was posed was by Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research, and you know that voice that you just heard. That's Dave Rosenberg from Gluskin Chef. He's talking about at least a, at least a tepid dollar strength situation amid a deflationary thesis, gold bullishness. Would we be walking into a 2020 situation in which EM, EMs, who have dollar debt, not as bad as they did during the Asian crisis, um, sneak up on us and end up surprising this market adversely? Well, you know, there's an old saying that um, emerging markets are markets that you can't emerge from in an emergency. <laughs> and uh, I think that, uh, look, I, I think that the global economy is, is going to be, uh, it ha is cooling off and will continue to cool off uh, from these uh, already low growth numbers that we have. Uh, don't forget that the latest number by the IMF um, I think the latest GDP growth estimate, correct me if I'm wrong, was 3.2%. Well, guess what? <laughs> That's what we got in 2009. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a lot of the haircut on global growth is coming from the emerging market world. Um, so uh, I, I would say that, uh, look, they're, 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 the valuations are compelling, uh, but I think that the band of uncertainty over uh, the economic outlook there uh, is, um, is questionable. Uh, I think I probably would rather be in emerging market debt than equity. Uh, I think that real interest rates there are still quite high. Uh, central banks there have a lot of room to cut interest rates. Um, I might want to hedge their currencies, but I think that if I'm going to be in EM, I'd rather be in, in the bond market than in the stock market. Mm -hmm. Now, there's been um, some discussion here in you know almost philosophical circles about you know, Athens versus Sparta, the rise of the new power amid an existing power that, that we're, we're facing down a 25 or 50 year Cold War. I know you have views on this. I've heard you do century long type stuff where China is the, is the new hostile threat to a, to a complacent West. How does this bear into your thesis? Is, is the market correct in, in doing this kind of game theory on this type of thing? Well, I think, you know, what you're referring to is the uh, classic, um, uh, Thucydides trap, um, and uh, and this again comes down to uh, um, you know a whole new range of uh, of uncertainties uh, from a global political, economic, and financial landscape. Um, none of us who are alive have ever seen uh, the United States challenged economically uh, the the way that uh, China is challenging the U.S. today. So this is not just about a trade war; um, it's a much broader than that. It's really uh, an economic war, and uh, uh, it's going to take hold over a long period of time and create recurring rounds of tension. Um, you know, that again comes right back down to why you might want to own gold. <laughs> well, gold is a, basically a hedge against these recurring bouts of instability. Um, but, uh, you know, the, this is different than the Cold War, where the U.S. was challenged um, on a military basis from the Soviet Union, and of course, Ronald Reagan spent them into oblivion. 
this is something different, uh, you know, and every few centuries, uh, you know, you tend to find that there's a new kid on the block that rivals the existing established uh, dominant economic power, uh, like how the U.S. did that uh, uh, after World War I vis-a-vis the U.K. If you told mm-hmm. anybody um, 150 years ago when they were singing Britannia Rules the Waves that it would be the United States, uh, the young up-and-comer that would be the global dominant economic power, that would have been a joke. Um, but so this is a, this is, this is a um, you know, when people talk about, well, there's going to be another uh, a series of phone calls that then leads to the trade team in Washington going to Beijing, and there's going to be a kumbaya moment uh, on the weekend, you know, how should I be positioned? Um, I just say, you know, block all that out. That is just noise, mm-hmm. okay? This is going to be um, a prolonged multi-year period of um, uh, of tensions, and I don't know if there is any near-term solution. What I do have a concern about is that this will continue to lead to what we've seen, and which was actually um, at the heart of uh, the IMF's um, growth reduction and their forecast was the pullback we're seeing in global trade flows and the disruption that we're seeing in global supply chains. Uh, to me, um, that's more of an overriding risk. Uh, and as a plays out, I think from an equity market standpoint, makes it more and more difficult to justify uh, the valuations you have in the equity market right now. This is Sirius XM 132 behind the markets. This is Jeff Weniger. On the line is the normal host, Jeremy Schwartz, and that's Dave Rosenberg. And Dave, in your Breakfast with Dave morning missive, you wrote something that really, frankly, was the first time I've seen this hypothesis. I'm, I'm, I'm making a reference here to an exodus from Hong Kong onto the West Coast, which is fascinating because I was a little bit on the other side of that trade. This is what you hypothesized, was essentially that um, Beijing's thinking about now sending the PLA into Hong Kong and that we would see that continuation of the capital flight, which was the, the impetus for, for bumping up housing markets in places like Vancouver and San Francisco. Is that Would that be enough to say, level out the fear factor that's starting to grip, certainly has gripped Vancouver, but but it looks almost like pretty punk data across the, the California coast on the housing side. Is that almost a, a, a benign situation? Well, you know, in the Vancouver situation, it's a... Uh it's almost a case to be careful what you wish for. Uh, I mean, it wasn't just that the Bank Canada for a period of time raised interest rates and that uh, Canada Mortgage and Housing, which is the really the National Housing Finance Authority, um, you know, uh, uh, tightened up on, um, on, on mortgage rules. Uh, and then you, of course, in B.C. had the government, um, you know, uh, establish taxes on uh, non-residents uh, that are buying property that actually don't live in the property. So you bring these measures, and um, <laughs> and there's really been a detonation in Vancouver home prices. But Vancouver mm-hmm. home prices, i got to tell you, I mean, it, it was a bigger bubble than in most places in the U.S. back 12, 13 years ago. And mm-hmm. um, I go to Vancouver quite often, and uh, a lot of the local residents were actually quite um, upset about the, you know, the, really the, the parabolic surge in home prices that made it, unaffordable for the locals and especially their kids to move out of the basement and, and buy a condo or buy a home. Uh, so that's a silver lining when you get a, um, a home price plunge like that is that it does tend to improve um, affordability. Um, then again, if you're a homeowner, you do feel a little bit poorer. Um, you know, I'm happy to say that, um, you know, the, the prior correction in the Toronto area uh, and the ongoing um, situation in Vancouver which is still in a full-fledged bear market, at least hasn't uh, come close to uh, impairing bear bank capital here or causing any sort of financial crisis. So it's just been a plain vanilla, um, really isolated uh, meltdown in prices uh, in Vancouver. Uh, Toronto now is actually past uh, um, its correction phase. Uh, and the point I was making is that, um, you know, Vancouver has the highest representation um, of Asian residents uh, of any country uh, outside of Asia in the entire world. By the way, that includes San Francisco. Yes. And when you go and you take a look at when there was the really big inflection point, which I think was 1989, uh, you know, with the changeover in Hong Kong, uh, a lot of uh, Hong Kong uh, uh, residents, um, you know, put a few toes in the Vancouver real estate market. Uh, and uh, so the question is, you watch these protests, and now they're getting... You know, they morph from being peaceful to being violent, and and and, mm-hmm. and you're seeing the uh, effect of the 
political turmoil. Uh, and you are talking about, um, at the margin, a lot of people that uh, have the means of, uh, of, of, of buying real estate. Where would they buy? Uh, I mean, if you move to Tro- if you look at Toronto, Toronto is very cosmopolitan. But um, if you go to Vancouver today, if you got off uh, the airplane, you think you're actually stepping into Asia. Um, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of ties. Uh, and so mm-hmm. my point is that insofar as, uh, as 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 these Hong Kong residents might want to have a safety valve outside of where they are right now, Vancouver would be their first choice of destination. Uh, and um, and that demand. Uh, influence um, could put a floor under Vancouver real estate sooner than a lot of people think. Yeah, and and when when Dave Rosenberg mentions bank capital here, he's referring to inside the nation of Canada where he operates. All right, we hit Canada, the United States, Europe. Never got to Switzerland. I wanted to do that. We did China. We did Hong Kong. What about Japan? That's the world's third largest economy. You had you had stated in in one of your missives. We have a few minutes remaining, about three minutes, mm. um, that you liked Japan. In, in what context was it? The yen? Was it the equities? What was it? I think that uh, I don't want to get overly political, but uh, you know, I, I think that I, well, I think economics, <laughs> I think economics is 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 working. Um, you know, look, Japan is getting hit hard, of course, by these. Uh, by the pullback in, in global trade flows and what's happening in this in this trade war, uh, and there's no doubt about it. But um, I mean, Abe has taken uh, Japan, um, you know, into a new era where taboos have been broken. Uh, you can actually get work visas now in Japan. They're they're importing uh, immigrant labor. That's brand spanking new. Uh, Abe has, um, uh, through the fiscal side, has managed to incentivize women, make make it much easier for them to uh, enter the labor force. Um, that's providing a big impetus uh, to uh, employment and income growth. Um, and uh, to the point where I think that their uh, labor force participation rate for women uh, is now higher than the average for the OECD. Uh, and corporate governance changes uh, are taking place as well, which is helping to, uh, to help create more of an equity culture in Japan. I mean, there's not many markets around the world that are trading at those valuations mm-hmm. uh, far below their previous peaks. But, you know, for the first time, you're actually seeing, I mean, this, this, will be a, this is a joke for probably most American investors to talk about in Japan for the first time. <laughs> Companies are actually buying back their stock. Well, and, you, uh, and, and when you and can get a 1.8 or 1.9 yield on, on the S&P 500, you're in the mid-twos in Japan. Yeah. And, and the thing is, actually, for all the talk about how Japan is stagnant, look, for so many years they had uh, such weak population. Um, you'd be surprised to know that in the past 10 years, uh, per capita real GDP in Japan has been better than it's been in the United States. Uh, their economy is not stagnant. Uh, like everywhere else in the world, um, inflation is not going anywhere. Uh, you've got this very unusual situation like most other countries where interest rates are negative and the BOJ has played a dominant role. Um, but I would say that there are some very significant structural changes taking place in Japan under Abe, uh, who I think has been a phenomenal leader, in my opinion. Um, but their supply side um, economics uh, has led to an increase in their uh, potential GDP growth rate. Uh, so uh, that is an area that uh, I like. Uh, I could tell you that in our international fund, it's our biggest overweight. Uh, that is a legitimate buy and hold story and um how much, and how much of an overweight uh i would say that right now probably uh 25 percent of our weighting is in japan in that fund so very significant of, of an efa fund uh, uh, yeah okay an efa msci efa uh is a generally about 19 20 21 japan and you're at about 25 give or take right Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.